You know, we've been singing about adoring the Savior, adoring the Lord. And there were people who had been waiting hundreds of years for His arrival. If you were to go to the Old Testament Scriptures, you would read time and time again where the prophets would be making a declaration concerning the coming of Christ. And they would talk about the place of His arrival. There was even an indication of the time of His arrival. They would talk about some of the circumstances that would surround His coming. They would talk about the place in which He would be born in Bethlehem. And then they would describe a number of different things that would be taking place in His life. And then ultimately, even the psalmist in Psalm chapter 22 wrote about His crucifixion. And every detail of what had been promised was fulfilled. People were waiting for that arrival. And we find ourselves today in somewhat of a similar situation. We are now waiting for the return of our Savior. And we began to look last week at what the Apostle Peter wrote about that in Second Peter, the third chapter. And I'd encourage you to turn back there again with me, if you will. Second Peter, chapter 3. And you'll notice as you begin there at verse 10, it begins to describe to us some of the events that are going to surround the return of Christ. And we understand that His return takes place in three different phases. The first is the rapture, where those who know Christ as Savior, both the dead and the living, dead shall be raised first, then we which are alive shall be caught up together with them, and we will meet the Lord in the air. And so we will ever be with Him. That's phase one. The second phase occurs following the tribulation period when Christ comes back to earth, establishes His kingdom, and He rules and reigns for a literal thousand years as a perfect king, but one who is still often rejected. At the conclusion of that thousand-year period, a final judgment revolving around that second coming of Christ will take place and the earth will be judged. And so what Peter does is he takes us to the final element of Christ's return. And he gives us things that we can be thinking about as we live a life that is in preparation for that return. And we read that here beginning at verse 10 of Second Peter chapter 3. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to His promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found in Him in peace without spot and blameless, and consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation." As also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, 
as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the Scriptures. You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, Beware, lest you also fall from your steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. But grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. Father, I ask that Your Holy Spirit would teach us from this portion of Your Word those truths that You desire for us to know. And we will thank You. In Jesus' name, amen. When the Lord tells us that Christ is coming again, He says essentially this, this is not a time to be passively sitting by. It isn't a time to become inactive. It isn't a time in which you can take ease and merely live within the hope of His coming. The hope of His coming is really a a foundation upon which we can build our lives, knowing that as the promise was fulfilled in His first arrival, there will be the fulfillment of His second coming as well. But, that has to affect the way we live. There has to be an impact upon our lives. If you know that someone is coming, you prepare. We talked about that last week, and uh, we, we have, this afternoon, our young adult Sunday school class is coming to our house for a Christmas party, and we're going to have a, a really wild time, and uh, it'll be with appetizers, and dessert, and exchange of white elephant gifts, and there'll be all these different things taking place, and do you know what we did In preparation, I did very little. But my wife got dessert ready. She has beverages all set. The house is relatively clean. The dog had a little makeover. There's all kinds of preparation. Why? Because there are people that are coming. And the Lord looks at us and He says, Listen, I'm coming. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to live a certain way. And he tells us very specifically. He doesn't leave us within any doubt. So when you come down here to verse uh, 11, it says, Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Our conduct has to be affected. And we talked last week about these two elements that are mentioned right off the bat. Holy conduct. Righteous in the way we live. When the Lord talks about being holy in our conduct, and and here's something that sometimes is a little bit, um, you have to be careful when you use illustrations, because sometimes the illustration is remembered more than the point you were trying to make. And all week long, people have been watching for me to wear khaki pants. And then they're checking to see if I have chocolate stains on them or the white shirt with the spaghetti stains on it. The whole point was to illustrate this. When the Lord speaks about living a holy life, He is talking about removing ourselves from the things that stain the soul. 
the things that introduce sinful behavior into our lives. He is telling us to be separate from those things that are impure. Those things that have a negative impact, not only upon the way we ourselves are living, but the way we would communicate Christ to others who would be watching us. And to bring ourselves over to the place of where we live lives that are pure. Lives that are clean. And he implores us to examine ourselves to be sure that the lives we're living, the conduct that we embrace, is a holy conduct. He tells us secondly, in that same verse, that we are also to be affected in godliness, in which there is an implication of attitude. The holiness really deals with our conduct, but when we talk about godliness, we are talking more about the attitude with which we live. We are to live lives that are in constant worship of the Creator, and and I think all of you know this, that when we gather together on this Lord's Day, we do it to gather as a church for the purpose of corporately lifting our hearts and our minds to the Lord. But the honest truth is the worship does not end when we leave this building. Worship is part of our lives everywhere we go. And that's what's often forgotten by Christians. Businessmen go back into the business world and they act like the unsaved. Housewives become involved in conversations that ought not go on and in becoming busybodies. Factory workers begin to embrace some of the language and and some of the the dirty talk that that shouldn't be part of our conversation. And, And young people become involved in behavior that is more in line with what the unsaved world is doing. Not being careful about the purity with which we live. Or those things that can harm not only our own testimony, but our very lives. And the Lord says, your conduct in godliness must be affected. You go from here and you worship, and you glorify God, and you lift up His name. That's all in preparation for His coming. He goes into a third element later as you go down into verse 14. And notice he says, Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace without spot and blameless. Let me begin with the last two statements there. Without spot and blameless are two words that are used elsewhere in the writings of Peter. Turn in your Bibles back just a couple of pages to 1 Peter Chapter 1, and if you look with me at verses 18 and 19, Peter is describing the way the Lord provided for our forgiveness and for the cleansing of our sins. And he says here in verse 18, Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but... With the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb, 
without blemish and without spot. The two identical words that are used by Peter back here in chapter 3. What is he calling us to? He is saying this, the very qualities of the life that Christ lived should be yours as well. Now, some people would stop at that point and say, ah, there is the indication of how we find God's forgiveness and eternal life. We live a life that is patterned after Jesus, and we try to emulate the things that he did. And that's a good goal. That is partly what Peter is saying here. But he is not saying that in order to cause us to believe that we can have our sins forgiven by emulating the life of Christ. We're forgiven because of the sacrifice of Christ and by the grace of God. But when we know Christ is our Savior and we've passed from death into life, Christ becomes the pattern after which we fashion our lives. He, in His righteous life, showed us the way to live a life of love, a life of compassion, a life of peace, a life that is filled with joy, a life that is dependent upon the Father regardless of the circumstances that come our way, a life that is committed to truth. And you can go on and on in every virtue of life and we find it in the person of Christ, and he says, that's the way you live. As the one who was, out, was without spot or blemish, you live the same way. You know what he's saying? He's saying you do what people have a tendency to do when they have a goal and an objective that they wish to achieve. Let me give you an example. If you are a bodybuilder, and you want to become muscular. And you want your body to have a certain chiseled look. And you want to be strong and grease yourself down with oil and then have people take pictures of you in all kinds of odd and unusual poses. You don't take a picture of Don Knotts and put him on the wall. You kids, do you know who Don Knotts is? You do? I, you know, I have to stop and think because when, when I'm saying these things, I, I put them in the realm of what I know. Who's some scrawny little weak? Now they're pointing to each other. Who? Justin Bieber? Is he a scrawny little? No? Okay, yeah, okay. Well, you don't put a picture of him on your wall. Oh. All right, let's close in prayer. <laughs> well, you might have his picture on your wall for a different reason, but you don't do it for bodybuilding. You know what you do? You get a picture of the person who has sculpted his or her, and ladies are into this too, body in such a way that you look and you say, oh, look how those pectorals are developed. Look at those biceps and triceps. Look at the thighs and the calves on that individual. And you look and you say, that's what I'm working toward. Now, most of us probably don't have that as a goal. But I can tell you who we should have as a goal. 
the Lord Jesus Christ. We, if I can put it this way, we put His picture on the wall and we say, that's what I want to be. Knowing that these things are going to happen, how should we live? We should live holy lives. We should live godly lives. We should live lives that are centered upon the person of Christ and emulate His life. And then you'll notice, he says, be found in Him in peace. He gives us the fourth element of preparation for the Lord's return. And he says, it centers around peace. Well, when you talk about peace, you can talk about peace in a variety of different realms. You can talk about international peace. And, and there is none. There, there's conflict all the time. And if our country is not involved in a conflict, there are other countries that are involved in conflict. And oftentimes the, the wars and battles and, and civil strife is going on within a country. And we see all of that. But that's not the peace he's talking about. We have no control over that peace. He is talking about peace in two different realms. One is a peace with God. To be brought into a relationship of peace with Him. And that is accomplished through a provision that God Himself made in the person of Jesus Christ. This, I think, is explained to us very clearly in one brief statement that's made by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 5. In Romans chapter 5, the first verse, let me read this to you. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There is no real peace until that peace is made. And we are not at peace with our Creator until... We come to Him on the terms that He established. You know how there are, at the end of a war, there are terms of peace that a person has to sign? And, and I guess it was at the end of the, the First World War, Germany was defeated, and they, they signed a peace agreement that, for all intents and purposes, really leveled that society. And that's part of the reason why Hitler was able to gather the following that he had, because it was an issue of revenge against France, who, to a large part, had established the terms of that peace. Well, here now comes this Second World War, and we are now engaged again, and when the enemy is defeated, they again have to sign a peace treaty that says, we agree with the terms that you our enemy has have established for the peace to exist. That's exactly what God says. The only way you will ever be at peace with me is if you accept the terms that I have set. You don't set the terms. I set them. See, the problem is we want to be at peace with our God our Creator, but we want to set the terms. We want to say, this is the way it's going to be. And God says, no. You're going to try to gain my, gain my favor by trying to do good things. And that's nice. And other people will enjoy the benefit of your trying to do good things. But you can't do anything good enough to take your sin away. 
And you're dealing with a holy God. So there's nothing you can do. It doesn't matter if you're baptized. You can't gain justification. You can't gain a declaration of peace by being baptized. You can't join any church and write your terms of peace with me. I don't accept that. I set the terms. Here they are. I have made him who knew no sin to be sin for you. So that through him you can receive his righteousness and all your sins are paid for. You come through faith in the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And no other way. Any other way you try, you will not be justified. You will not be forgiven. You will not have peace. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. As many as received Him, to them He gave the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on His name. The only way to be at peace with your Creator is through faith in Christ. Watch something very interesting last night on TV. Kind of finished up my study and sat down, turned on the tube, had no intention of watching this, but there was a thing called... Um, can't remember the exact title. Oh, the the Marinovich project. Some of you might remember football player Todd Marinovich, who played for uh, USC, went on to play for the Raiders, had all the talent you could imagine, just incredible talent. Worked very hard to become a great quarterback. But when he arrived at the the place of being the starting quarterback for the Oakland Raiders, he said, it was empty. These are, this is him talking. There was, there was nothing to it. He says, I achieved everything that I had set my, my heart on, and it didn't bring anything. He got involved heavily in drugs. His second year in professional football, he became an absolute flop, had to leave Tried to come back later on through the arena football. Did very well, but became so involved in drugs that his life was essentially destroyed as far as his being a professional athlete. Here's the sad part. He never found that which satisfies the emptiness. At least not to this day. I can tell you, the only satisfaction for the empty spot within our hearts is filled by the person of Christ. That's it. And He gives a reason to live. And He gives a reason to live at peace with those around us. Now the peace that He's talking about here is not merely that which is achieved through faith in Christ, but now it's the application of that peace as we live out our lives with one another. doesn't mean you can't disagree, but you still be at peace. You don't declare war on those around you. You love your neighbor as yourself, even if they're not believers. 
but especially you do good to those who are of the household of faith. And so the Lord puts before us that if we are to prepare well for the coming of Christ, it's got to affect our conduct. But there's more. A second element that enters the picture here is that our consciousness has to be affected. And the consciousness involves the way we see God performing His work and the things that He's doing. And I want you to take a look at one of the benefits of having our consciousness change to where we understand that the reason for which we are here is to work with God in the purposes that He is fulfilling. If you look down here at verse 12, notice what it says that we can do. We can work with His program. I'm going to start at verse 11. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God? Wait a minute. Do you mean that we can work with God in the process of hastening His return? And the answer is yes. Now, I do have to tell you something. At this point, there is a disagreement among translators as to how this phrase, uh, to hasten the coming of the Lord, how that should be translated. There are those who would see it as exactly the way we have it written here in our scriptures. But this is also written, and depending upon the way you would uh, pronounce the words, and, and there, there are different, uh, we, we, even in our, our uh, English language, depending on how you pronounce a certain uh, word, it has a, a different meaning. So we find that same thing here, and it could mean to desire earnestly. So either hasten his coming, or to desire earnestly his coming, which is correct. Being the scholar that I am, don't laugh. I'll take the easy way out and say, I think they both are. I wonder if the Lord on occasion writes things in such a way that whatever the appropriate translation would be, they all would apply. I believe that he allows us to work with the idea that there are those who will accept Christ as Savior, and when the last person is saved, the Lord's coming. Can you imagine being the last person to accept Christ as Savior? That... <laughs> That would be absolutely incredible. I mean, talk about making it by the skin of your teeth. And could you imagine being the person that God uses to lead the last person to the Savior to be that individual? Could that be you? You'll never know unless you try. But does it also mean that we earnestly anticipate His coming? Absolutely! I talk to people regularly who say, I just can't wait until the Lord returns. I just would love it. I was speaking uh, just on Friday. I went over to, to visit with Doug Bimley. And uh, Lois and Doug were there. And uh, Doug is having a hard time now uh, speaking. But as we're talking, they both indicated they just would love for the Savior to come. 
earnestly desiring, looking for that coming of Christ. Do you know what the Lord says to us? I'm going to let you be part of my work until that day comes. And you can look forward to that day knowing that you have been part of the process in bringing people to myself. And those who hear the message are enjoying the benefit of the Lord's long-suffering. Look with me at two verses that come to mind here. Look at verse 9 where it says this, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Drop down to verse 15. And consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you. You know what the Lord is telling us here? In this process of his work, he is being patient in having Christ return so that more people can be saved. It's possible that some of you here tonight or today have never trusted Christ as your Savior. One of the best things that you can understand at this point is God's being patient for you. But one day that patience will run out. And the Lord will come. I ask you, I beg you, if you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, trust Him today. Receive forgiveness today. Embrace the gift, the free gift of eternal life that God gives because of what Christ did for you at the cross of Calvary. You may be the last one. He's patient. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And then notice too, he speaks as well of the transformation that is going to take place in this earth. Are you all kind of discouraged with the way things are going right now? Boy, what I'm really happy about is that uh, if uh, the next election takes place, if the Lord doesn't come before it, we have got a host of candidates on both sides of the aisle that are definitely going to bring the answers. There is not a person, there's not a person on either side that I would look at right now and say, this is an individual that I could back. It looks like, um, what's his name? The white-haired guy. Newt Gingrich is probably starting to distance himself. And I said to my wife, I said, I think he's going to be the Republican nominee. And my guess is there are going to be people, because of his conservative political views, will look at him and say he would be the best candidate. Others would say, no, we believe that Barack Obama should be given a chance for another four years to see that more of the the processes of the things that he believes will bring about economic recovery, that those will be better. Well, I look at that, and there would be moral issues that I would have with Barack Obama, and there would be moral issues that I have with Newt Gingrich. 
And you may not like this, but I'm going to say it anyway. Isn't that what I say? I probably shouldn't say this, but I'm going to anyway. The man is an absolute immoral, disgusting excuse. Let me put that in kinder terms. At the time he is involved in the trial of Bill Clinton for immorality, he is having an affair with somebody that's not his wife. Now people tell us, boy, you've got to be real concerned about the moral character of the people that you elect. I can tell you this, I cannot vote for that man. He might have every political view that I would hold, but his morals eliminate him. He's had two affairs, divorced two of his wives, and is now married to a third that I would not be real confident if I were her. And you look at a person like that and the moral integrity that they have and say, we trust you with our country. Our hope isn't in politics, folks. The Lord is the one who has the power to transform hearts. And you know what? One day He's going to transform this world. And look how He's going to do it. If you look back up here at verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Drop down to verse... Where is it? There's another verse. Twelve. There, yeah. Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. The Lord is going to transform the entire creation and He is going to make a new heaven and a new earth. And do you know what's going to happen physically? We are going to have completely new bodies that are fit to live for eternity without any impact of sin, and we will have this blessing. We will not remember the failures and the sins that we have committed in this life. You say, how do you know that? Because Isaiah wrote to us, and he told us about this time in Isaiah 65, 17. It says, behold, I will create new heavens and a new earth, just as it's described here in, in first, or pardon me, Second Peter. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. I don't have to carry all my failures throughout eternity. I don't have to be plagued by the sins that I've committed throughout eternity. When the Lord makes a new heaven and a new earth, it's all going to be different. And spiritually, this will be a place where righteousness dwells. This world today is not made for righteousness. But that's coming. A new heaven and a new earth. Change your consciousness. And then finally change your commitment. And I'm going to mention this very briefly. As you look down in this passage, and even a little before, the Lord is talking to us about truth. And He tells us this, that truth can be denied. If you look at verse 5, For this they willfully forget. In other words, whatever truth is being declared by God through His Word, there are those who willfully put it out of their minds and they don't remember what God has to say. 
And so they take truth and they just lay it off to the side and they live their lives without the benefit of living under the realm of truth. That truth can also be distorted. Look at what it says in verse 16. As also in all his epistles, well, you've got to read verse 15. Um, and consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you. Okay, now here's what he says. As also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the Scriptures. You can distort the truth. They did it in the Old Testament. The people of Israel took the message of the prophets and distorted them. They took the message concerning the coming of Christ and they distorted it. They made Christ a person after their own image. And what happened when Christ challenged the traditions and the sinfulness of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they rejected Him and they killed Him. Well, they didn't kill Him. They put Him on the cross and He gave up His life. And He died. That's what they did in distorting the truth. And you know what? People are still doing it even today. Did you all get the knock on the door on Saturdays? You got two or three people standing outside trying to tell you that you can live on this earth forever and that Jesus is not God come in the flesh? Shame on them. Shame on them. And I do have to tell them in kindness that they are lost. And they do not have eternal life. And they are not forgiven. Because they deny the one who gave himself that we might live. Well, they distort the truth. But there is something about the truth that's endearing to those who know the Savior. You can receive the truth. You can accept it. You can embrace it. Now, is the truth easy to understand? No! Look, Peter says it. And you know what? This to me is really kind of cool. Here's Peter, who's a friend of Paul's. And Peter says, you know, our brother Paul, he's written about these things too. And then he just kind of slips in this little sidelight. And you know, some of the stuff he has to say is hard to understand. <laughs> and so, what's the answer to that? Well, just minimize the things that the Lord says. Don't, don't bother beating your head over it. Don't make a point of really trying to figure out what God said and teaching that. Instead, just take the elements, take the elemental things on the surface and be satisfied with those. Is that what the Lord says? He tells us we are to rightly divide the word of truth. He tells us that John who was also one of their friends, says, I have no greater joy than to know that my children walk in truth. And guess what? It's hard. It's not easy to understand. And when you come to what you believe is the truth, it's not arrogantly, but it's with this conviction. I believe this is what God has to say. And that is vitally important. Because if I don't embrace the truth, you know what will happen? I will be led away by error. It's that simple. It's that simple. And so the Lord tells us this. He says, Christ is coming again. 
he is going to be back to this earth again. So you get ready. I should have renamed this message. Three to get ready. Where does that come from? What's that? What, one for the money, two for the show, three to get ready, and four to go. Three to get ready. Conduct. Consciousness. Commitment. And four to go. Let's pray. Father, thank You that we can live today with the absolute certainty that just as our Savior came the first time as a babe in a manger, He is coming again to rule and to reign as the King of the universe. We thank You that through Jesus Christ we can have peace with You. And we thank You, Father, that You've given Your Word so that we might know who You are I pray that by Your grace You would help us to rightly divide it and to make much of the truths that You have revealed to us. Father, we thank You that we can dwell together as brothers and sisters in Christ in peace and that through all this, the Lord Jesus Christ can be glorified. Until He comes, Father, draw people to Yourself through Him and cause those of us who know Christ as Savior to live in preparation of His arrival. In Jesus' name, Amen.